There's so much going on in these ecosystems, and we've only started researching this stuff like three years ago. Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week, we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel. And this week, we are taking a break from talking about specific animals to dive into a unique type of grassland ecosystem called Uh riverine grasslands. And just because the flagship species for this ecosystem is a bird doesn't mean I planned it that way or that I specifically wanted to talk about birds. I don't believe you, but okay, that's cute. (laughs) But first, some quick news. We have gotten not only a ton of ratings, but just a ton of love this past week. So we wanted to give some quick shout outs. So Skylar on both Podchaser and Apple Podcasts gave us a review, five stars in both places. And he said, wonderful and informative podcast discussing grassland ecology and all things grassland. There's way more than you thought. And we agree. (laughs) We we agree. (laughs) And you can interpret that so many ways. Yes. (laughs) And Becky S. also gave us a five-star review and says, very entertaining and informative. Oh, thanks, Becky S. (laughs) Thank you so much. So Podchaser is still donating 25 cents for every review that ends up on their website in the month of April. So get to reviewing. And don't forget Apple Podcasts if you have a couple extra spare seconds. You're all so lovely. And they do have to have accounts in both of those places to leave a review. So if you just don't want to, that's totally fine. But for some reason, those are the only ways to like publicly review us. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> oh, my voice broke real bad. Um... <laughs> And speaking of donations, we have had several donations this past week and just wanted to say a really big thank you to everyone who donated. It really means a lot to us. So thank you. Yeah, so, so much, like genuinely. You guys are awesome. Just, yeah, I can't even do words. (laughs) I know. Me neither. It's okay. We're only doing a podcast. Mm, Words are only (laughs) mildly important for that. Yeah, you know. So, let's dive on in. Yeah. To to river grasslands? Riverine grasslands. Yeah, you don't even know, Nicole, what we're going to get into. Um, (laughs) Actually, this this episode, like, in the course of researching it, like, hit so many boxes for me. Like, number one, it made me mad about the way that people talk about grasslands in zoos, a.k.a. they don't. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There was a biosphere reserve I came across, and I was like, ooh! um birds oh my god uh but also just like things that i wish people talked about but they don't because there's so many more charismatic animals that steal Mm -hmm. all the attention and so people just talk about those animals all the time okay so we're gonna travel to a specific state in a country we are going to go to assam india for this episode Okay. I don't know. I, I'm not worldly enough to know where that is. That's okay. It's it's like up right <laughs> underneath the Him- Himalayas. Okay. Kind of. So it, it kind of 
borders, the area we're talking about kind of borders uh, Bhutan and a few other areas. So it's like up at the top. Yeah, it's an area in northeastern India known for its wildlife, archaeological sites, and tea plantations. Mm -hmm. But not its grasslands. Not its grasslands, (laughs) which is stupid. Okay, so uh, the first thing I want to say is like just a note that when I use language like Indian during this episode, I am referring to the country of India, not Native Americans or any indigenous peoples. (laughs) Okay. India, Indian, we're talking about the country of India and the subcontinent of India. Um, and we're going to talk about their grasslands. Nicole? Yes. Do you, do you have a a certain picture in your mind when you think of Indian grasslands? I mean, I do now that I looked it up. I see a rhino and some really beautiful, like, tussock grassy looking things. Okay. Okay. It's quite cute. But, like, before you looked it up, you couldn't, like, recall any images in your mind? Probably not. Okay. Which highlights how stupid this is because this is, like, literally (laughs) tiger habitat. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, like tiger and one-horned rhinoceroses. Like, this is Mm -hmm. a very iconic landscape, but nobody actually freaking knows what this ecosystem is because all we talk about is like, (laughs) oh, tigers are cool. Like, (laughs) Oh, I'm having flashbacks to Shelter 3 and all the grass that tigers hid in and ate my babies. Oh, my gosh. Your elephant babies (laughs) that you drowned. Well, one drowned because it got attacked (laughs) by a crocodile and then... (laughs) Like, two others died from tigers, so. Yeah, yeah. And and that's, you know, so in Shelter 3, for our listeners who don't play video games, uh, (laughs) uh, you're playing as a a matriarch elephant. So this is also an area that has Indian elephants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, it's all related. Yeah. Okay, but isn't that, like, absurd? Like, how many of these animals do you encounter regularly? Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, it's so difficult to call to mind where these animals live or what the ecosystems are like. And when I picture my knowledge base for these animals, it's either, you know, documentaries where they really don't discuss the ecology or the habitats uh, yeah. or the, the geography of the place. They just talk about the freaking animals and make some story about the animals. Or it's at a zoo where there's, like, some really kitschy sort of – is kitschy the right word? culturally questionable exhibits that make it seem as exotic as possible. Yeah. You know what I mean? hmm Yeah. So I learned a lot researching this, and I'm very excited about it. So, so first, what I'm going to do is kind of lay out um, the basics on these Indian grasslands, and then we're going to talk about the river Brahmaputra and the grasslands that exist on that river, how they're unique, and the flagship species that represents this entire ecosystem, which is actually a bird. And I will go ahead and tell you that it is the world's rarest bustard. (gasps) I love bustards. (laughs) I tried to make you guess last night, and like out of all the large (laughs) birds you guys were listing off, you never got anywhere close to bustard. (laughs) I know. I forget they exist sometimes because they're just like... I don't know. They're so unique and you yeah. just don't think about them that much. Yeah. And I learned in researching this episode that they are grassland specialists. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't realize the extent to which they are. They kind of look like a, a more, I don't know, generic water bird body shape, but they're absolutely not. So this is going to be pretty yeah. fun. Um, the the species that I'm going to talk about is the Bengal florican, but uh, oh. a lot of these 
bustards have things in common with the Bengal florican. It's just that this is, you know, specifically the flagship species for these kind of riverine uh, grasslands in India, and is also the world's rarest bustard. So it's kind of been selected by the naturalists and ecologists of the area as like, you know, that chosen, like iconic species that they're using to raise support for this conservation uh, effort. Okay. Yeah. So it truly was not just a Rachel decision. <laughs> it truly wasn't. Although I was bound and determined to not talk about tigers in this episode uh-huh. because I was so mad about how tigers steal all of the spotlight for this entire habitat. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. So in India, grasslands have a lot of really familiar problems and setups to pretty much every other grassland. Um, they are a tropical grassland ecosystem. And grasslands are widespread throughout India, but are very threatened by habitat destruction the way literally every grassland is, because they're often the first natural areas to be cut down for agriculture and development, etc., compared to forests, although deforestation is also an issue. Um, And in the Indian subcontinent, there are an extremely diverse set of grassland habitats that fall along a huge range of rainfall patterns. Again, very similar to other continents or smaller geographical areas. So these include things like semi-arid dry grasslands in the northwest deserts. Um, There's also wet alluvial floodplain grasslands uh, in these sort of riverine places that we're going to be talking about today in the northeast. So just a huge range of diversity. But today, the grasslands that I want to explore are, are an even more unique, really specific grassland type that occurs along the massive river... Brahmaputra, which has its origins in the Himalayas and then kind of snakes around uh, this like north northern portion of India and surrounding countries that are north of it. So when the Brahmaputra enters the state of Assam, because I kind of had to narrow it down somehow, so Assam was kind of the area that I looked at geographically. Um, mm-hmm. So when it enters this state, It becomes incredibly wide. We're talking like as wide as 12 miles in parts. Wow. Yeah. And so- Is it deep too? Or is it pretty shallow? um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I I know that there are uh, river dolphins in this area, but that doesn't mean that it has to be deep. Um, Yeah. But one, one feature of this river that is noteworthy is that it's populated by a series of shifting- changing sandy river islands sounds like kansas (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) so the river islands is actually what originally caught my eye there was a really Mm -hmm. cool reporting uh done by manga bay india about these island ecosystems and specifically the grasslands on them Mm -hmm. and so my brain saw this and i was like i'm sorry the what the floating grassland (laughs) islands (laughs) on Uh the river brahmaputra what is this um so yeah this is what drew me to the story but it goes so much deeper than just these islands uh let me kind of describe kind of what these islands are like so one one example is majuli And Majuli is an island on the Brahmaputra that is actually the largest river island in the world. 
Oh. And this one island alone is 340 square miles. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So they're huge. Uh, they can be huge. Some are smaller, but they're they're huge. They often have habitats that are fully established on them. Some are more mm-hmm. permanent than others. Uh, but the islands are actually usually inhabited. And they're inhabited by a wide range of ethnic groups. Um, Majuli alone has a population of about 150,000 people. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And Majuli is dominated by wetland, not grassland. But I think it's a really good example of what's happening on these river islands. Uh, So, Nicole, on a wide, massive river with sandy islands, what is a a challenge that you would expect (laughs) those kinds of places would face? Uh, Erosion and flooding. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's literally it. Yeah, so erosion. (laughs) (laughs) Also, real quick, real quick, real quick. Every time you say Potra, um, you blow out your mic. Um, Dang it. So you really need a pop filter fan. I know. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna try not to. I keep like moving closer to the mic because I keep getting excited uh-huh. too. So Bron Aww, Potra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was that? <laughs> that was much better. Okay. My bad. <laughs> uh, okay. So yeah, erosion is a huge issue. So on this 340 square mile island... Since 1991, over 35 villages have just washed away. Oh, no. Yeah. And surveys show that in 15 to 20 years from now, uh, this 340 square mile island will just cease to exist without intervention. Oh, no. (laughs) I know. Gosh. It's kind of insane. What do you do to save an island? Without, I don't like, know. I don't. I don't know. Like a river island in particular. Yeah. Without I, like I don't know altering the the river itself. Like because then it's right. kind of I don't know. Hmm. And like the obvious answer is like oh well you could plant you know things that will kind of dissuade erosion yeah. which you can do but I mean this is a giant island that is already populated with plants so like what what else could yeah. you do? And mm-hmm. there is like an entire division of Assam's government that's dedicated to these river islands. I'll talk more about the river islands later. They, they do have specific names in that region, um, Char and Chapori, which, um, which are sometimes used interchangeably, but they refer to the sandbanks and the islands that are separated from the bank. But mm-hmm. usually these areas are, are dedicated to the, the people and the human issues on these islands. Mm-hmm. And there are, like, entire ethnic groups on these islands that have, like, a really culturally distinct existence on these river islands. So this is, you know, a really unique area with a really unique uh, human relevance and cultural background and history, as yeah. well as a unique ecological history. And so I do want to point out in this episode that, you know, since this podcast focuses on the ecology issues, um, I, I hope you understand that this is not at all to take away from the human issues. And that, that's, that's a big part of the conservation of these islands and trying to find ways to maintain these islands and make these humans living on these islands uh, able to exist in, in a sustainable way, have some sort of economic stability. That's a huge part of all of this as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So that's the setup. Um, 
let's talk about these riverine grasslands on the Brahmaputra. So there's a really cool researcher I found through that Mangabay India article. There was a couple of them, actually. Uh, His name is Garish Jathar, and he works for the Bombay Natural History Society. And he's got just a massive CV studying this river's bird habitats in Assam. Like, this guy literally wrote the manual on how to do bird surveys in this area. Like, if you want to read some really cool stuff, just look at his uh, publication history. And there's just so much stuff to look at. Um, But according to him, there's a unique combination of habitat, like sandbars, wet grasslands, dry grasslands, scrublands, forests... Uh, that make the Brahmaputra's floodplains a really rich habitat for grassland birds specifically. He actually Mm -hmm. identified uh, 210 bird species in this river's floodplains. And of those, 113 of them are grassland-dependent species. Wow, that's... Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and, And those include things like the Indian grass bird, which... Oh, I just got a little bit giddy learning this name. Like, oh, it's just a grass bird. (laughs) And the Jordan's babbler. Like, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of grassland-dependent birds I'd never heard of. Uh, And actually, 10 of those grassland birds are globally threatened. Wow, yeah. Yeah. What's a, okay, real quick. What's a babbler? Because that's a great name. Oh, yeah. I think they're related to warblers. Oh, okay. So it's just talking about how they sing. Yeah. Hang on, let me look it up. Babble, 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 babble. I'm a babbler. Yeah, it's an it's an old world songbird. They're very cute. Timoleidae. Ah, uh, the greatest variety of this group of birds is in Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent. <laughs> so Aww, that makes nice. sense. Oh, they got kind of intense faces. They kind of they have like starling bodies. They're like a <laughs> starling songbird hybrid. <laughs> um, that's an interesting description. Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> they have the short wings, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. so basically my point here is that, um, this is a very significant habitat type. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, according to, lo- to the research that's been done in this area, uh, birds are identified as a really visible and vocal component of grassland fauna specifically. So birds are considered incredibly valuable as an indicator of ecosystem health for grasslands. Um, That's because most grassland birds nest on or close to the ground, and they can possess really specific habitat requirements. So as a result, habitat destruction causes really steep declines in those grassland bird populations. And I would contrast this to stuff like rhinoceroses and tigers. Like, they're able to survive in a lot of different habitat types, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, their survival is not nearly as dependent on grassland ecosystems as these very specific birds. Sure, yeah. And again, not a surprise to anyone because we know how this works in the grassland ecology world. Grassland birds, especially in tropical regions, have received very little to no study or conservation <laughs> attention compared to forest birds. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And this was something that was published in a paper in 2019. Like, hey, oh, no. until recently, these birds really haven't received any study attention. <laughs> so it's a problem. <sighs> and again, 
the grasslands don't only occur on the floodplain, they occur literally on the river itself on sometimes massive islands, the Charchapuri grasslands. Okay, so so these um, grasslands on the islands, like I mentioned before, are called char or chapuri. And a char is usually a floating island and a chapuri is usually a riverbank, uh, but they're used interchangeably or even with a hyphen and they keep changing shapes. So actually a human researcher a human rights researcher based out of Guwahati, which is really close to, never mind, doesn't matter. Anyway, his name is Abdul Kalam Azad. Uh, he has a quote that says, they, they keep changing shapes. A char ch- can become a chapuri or vice versa, depending on the push and the pull of the Brahmaputra. So that's why the mm-hmm. language itself is very interchangeable. Yeah. I mean, rivers are very much alive like they constantly are moving and changing their banks so it makes sense you know the islands and those rivers would also be highly variable Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and i love that the language describing these islands reflects that yeah another little tidbit to give you an idea of how dominant these charchapuri are is that they cover four and a half percent of assam's area so like they cover a huge portion of the state like for being just river islands on a river that just kind of goes through the state like that's a lot of (laughs) land mess (laughs) and on the website i've actually got a lot of aerial like google maps images of some of these conservation areas so if you go and like kind of just browse the river you can really see how much of this river is just you know islands (laughs) it's kind of cool um, yeah, and again, to be clear, speaking of protected ecological areas, there are a lot of protected ecological areas along the Brahmaputra. They rarely include any of those river islands, though, and usually the land is set aside to protect the mega herbivores like tiger, elephant, rhino, wild buffalo, swamp deer, all of those sorts of things, leopards. So um, the fact that the grasslands are conserved in a way that benefits these grassland-dependent species is kind of an accident, actually. (laughs) It's just like, thank goodness there are tigers around or people wouldn't really care as much about conserving them. Uh, Yeah. So uh, to kind of dive a little bit deeper into what these ecosystems are like, I want to talk about the world's rarest bustard, the flagship species for these ecosystems. And if, if yeah. you don't know what a bustard looks at, like, please look one up. They're the most ridiculous looking birds. They're so beefy. And they've got these little <laughs> stilt legs and this little big old neck. Yeah. Um, they're ridiculous looking. And yeah. I actually yeah. was going to like I, literally ask you what a bustard is and to see if you could describe them. So I'm so happy you <laughs> actually know what a bustard is. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're, they live in the Eurasian steppe. And everybody knows I'm obsessed with the steppe. So. Ah, that's why. Yeah, would you describe them as big birds or small birds? They're pretty big. Yeah, yeah. And they are described as large-bodied, even though they're not, you know, Rhea large. Mm -hmm. For a bird, they're they're pretty large. They're so poofy. (laughs) They kind of have like an ostrich body shape, but like not quite as ridiculous of a neck. Mm -hmm. Or feet. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I think, a, a good description. So here's how I wrote a description of bustards. 
<laughs> They're a large-bodied bird that's really easy to hunt and really defenseless and makes a really good meal. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. So, so they have really small bills. So they're not really good for, like, stabbing things. You know, they're just, like, a little short bill. And they've got really long legs, which, again, makes them kind of look like they would be a shorebird or some kind of water bird. But here's the thing. I actually did not know this about bustards. Um, but at least in uh, the description of all Asian bustards, they mm-hmm. said that bustards as a group cannot perch in trees or take refuge in the water at night. So they, that makes them super wary birds that are really <laughs> dependent on large areas of little disturbed open country, basically so they can have the space to see and watch for dangers and keep them at a distance because they just like have no defenses, can't perch in trees, can't take <laughs> refuge in the water at night, they can't sleep in the waters. So, like they just have to like sit in the grass and like watch everything. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you need those long legs to see over the grass. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. So I was just so delighted to learn that these as a group were just super grassland dependent. I, I guess I did not yeah. realize that about bustards. <laughs> I knew something about birds you didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, so anyway, now I'm in love with bustards is the, the moral They're of this so story. They're so good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the Bengal florican is a turkey-sized bustard, and it's considered a representative indicator species of dry grasslands in the Brahmaputra, as well as the Ganga, which is a river, a a different river system. And uh, the presence of this species, according to that bird researcher I mentioned before, Jathar, their presence alone indicates a really good, healthy grassland ecosystem. So people really look for this rare bird to see how good mm-hmm. this ecosystem is doing. Oh. And, okay, this this species is like a really interesting one. Let me show you a picture of it so you can have an idea of what they look like. And I'll, I'll make you uh, <laughs> maybe describe it a little bit. You can find oh, pictures gosh. of it on the website, okay. everybody listening. You'll often, on our website. On our <gasps> website. He's gorgeous. I oh know. my gosh. Look at that. And you see that tucked in white wing? Uh-huh. Yeah. Here, Here's a picture of one of them getting a little backpack transmitter. And you can see just the how big they are and those big white wings. Yeah. Can they use those wings as kind of like a startle reflex where they spread them out and scare away predators and stuff? You know, I don't think that that's the case. They mostly use them in uh, mating displays. Makes sense. Yeah. You've, you've probably, you, Nicole, and you listeners have probably seen a bustard of some sort in at least one documentary. Uh, it might have been in like the most recent Planet Earth. Uh, it's usually the lesser florican that shows up, but they'll, you know, bounce up out of the grasses and then like bounce back down <laughs> in kind of ridiculous uh-huh. ways. They, they also have that black neck and head like this guy does, but they have beautiful plumes coming off the back of their head. Yeah. So you'll see them do those, those aerial displays and that's usually why they're being featured. They never talk about the freaking ecosystems that they're a part of. Urgh. No. But yeah. they do that. Um, the Bengal florican has like a, a really flighted display. I'll show you a time lapse that I also have on the website. It's um, 24 frames of a displaying 
Bengal florican stitched together. Mm. So you can see it flies up in this big arc and then flies back down. And you you can find, you know, maybe one or two videos of this. But this bird is so rare that it's kind of difficult to find images and videos of the bird in its habitat. I mean, there's a Facebook page called Bengal florican from Mm. one of the regions where it lives that sometimes has good videos. I actually embedded a Facebook video on the website because I couldn't find any other good (laughs) videos. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, they're kind of hard to find uh, resources on because they're just so rare. That really, that that black and white plumage is just like stark against the background. It really stands out. And you can just see, gorgeous. yeah, and you can see how it stands out in that mating display and how that's, mm-hmm. you know, really, it seems like just to show off how beautiful their their plumage is. Yeah. Ooh, man, imagine <laughs> watching that in real life. I really want to go to Assam now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have so many field trips planned. Uh, I know. Okay, so, so here's a couple of things that make this bird... Um, kind of weird and kind of amazing. So they do breed on grasslands and then toward the end of a dry season, of the dry season, they undertake a short migration. And in some places I saw a description of this and I was like, oh, okay, they take a a short migration to low statute, statue, open forests. I don't know what that means, but I wrote it down because that's what they said. (laughs) But then I kept reading and I was like, hang on a second. People like don't or didn't know where these birds went. They just disappeared, except for oh. one population where they happened to know because they showed up in a national park in the non-breeding <laughs> season. Um, yeah. But they actually completely disappeared in the non-breeding season, except for that one population. And we never knew what happened to them until 2018. When we strap transmitters wow. to them finally to figure out where the heck they go. Because <laughs> nobody studies grassland birds. <laughs> uh, um, so this bird is found in two distinct populations separated by thousands of kilometers, which also makes them weird. So two thirds of them actually breed in Cambodia in the floodplain of a lake. So again, a floodplain huh. grassland, but it's on a lake in Cambodia. And the rest of them live uh, on these sort of like riverine ecosystems, maybe up closer to the foothills of the Himalayas, but also in Assam and the Ganga River, uh, in the Brahmaputra and the Ganga. So those are the habitats they live in. And yeah, they just disappeared, (laughs) a lot of them, (laughs) until very recently. Uh, And that's because their breeding displays are really, really obvious but when they're not breeding, yeah. I mean, like we said, this bird is just like basically eyes on legs hanging out in the grass, like terrified <laughs> all the time because it's nothing but a giant meal with no defenses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, in 2018, we finally learned the distribution and habitat used during the non-breeding season for the first time over this bird. And using satellite data, the researchers also identified several potential habitats where the Bengal florkins could be present that they never knew about before. So they they really hadn't undergone a a huge survey effort of this bird. So not only did they discover places this bird was using during the non-breeding season, they also discovered places this bird 
was using that nobody knew the bird was showing up on. Like we knew the bird was living in Brahmaputra wildlife sanctuaries on the banks, Mm -hmm. but they were starting to be observed on the grassland islands on the Brahmaputra. So for the first time ever, they spotted, for example, four male Bengal florikins hanging out on a couple of river islands in one of the tributaries of the Brahmaputra for the first time. So they were really observing how this bird uses the landscape, and they were really surprised with where this bird pops up, where it can be present, and that it was showing up in grasslands outside protected areas, too, in this river delta. So this really opened our eyes to how the bird is using the landscape and how, like a lot of grassland bird species, it turns out, they really utilize these river island habitats as almost a refugia. Because if you look at the map of these wildlife sanctuaries and national parks along the river, I mean, there's sometimes large swaths of protected areas, but they're also very well developed, either for human settlement or for agriculture, especially in recent years. Like, you know, a floodplain is a really fertile area. So not only is it a grassland that's easy to cut down, but it's very fertile. So of course it's going to be converted to agriculture. And not only the floodplain, but even the river islands themselves are being converted to agriculture. And it turns out that these, you know, slightly more untouched islands of sometimes large expanses of grassland are really refugia for these grassland bird species as they move through this landscape. And not only the Mm -hmm. birds, but even some of the mammals as well. So for the first time, yeah, so for the first time, we're really seeing a picture of this landscape that includes the Charchapuri as an essential piece of this broader floodplain and the grassland ecosystems that dominate it. So this is just like such a cool picture that we've only gotten in the last two, three years, I guess. It's technically 2021 now, barely. (laughs) Yeah, in the last three years. Isn't that insane? Yeah, it really is. Huh. Especially when you think about like, man, there's tigers on this landscape. Like, how have we not been studying this stuff already? (laughs) But, you know, it's just because the grasslands themselves are not the piece of the landscape being studied. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, very, very cool. (laughs) This Bengal Florican issue uh, is a really good way to highlight how we can save or understand uh, what is happening in this broader ecosystem, right? So we're going to look at uh, some of the things that have been identified to avert the extinction of bustards in this region of Asia. And... Therefore, how these riverine grassland ecosystems, which benefit so many other birds, can really be saved. And I will point out, if you want to learn more about the the Charchapuri specifically, I just cannot get over the reporting done by Manga Bay India. Seriously, the reporting they did on the Charchapuri grasslands just in February, which is how this came to my attention, February, two months ago, they they did this huge report on some of the conservation work being done on these islands and some of the bird species that live on them and, you know, mm-hmm. how they're doing the grassland ecology work on them. It's so cool. And, and there's so many really neat little grassland birds that are living on these grassland islands, floating islands, that is fantastic. <laughs> so if you want to hear more about the human dimensions uh, of this, I will link that article in the description. Um, but yeah, what does this conservation look like? 
how do we help the species? What are the main threats to this species? And identifying those things will help us preserve this entire ecosystem and all 113 <sighs> grassland-dependent birds that live in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so basically, we know that the long-term prospects of all six species of bustard are extremely bleak. <laughs> unless we prioritize our conservation. Right. Okay. F- fantastic. Well, we Thanks. probably could guess that. So that's great to know. Um, <laughs> it seems like for bustard conservation, the real key is adult survival and productivity. So like, you know, producing offspring. And in order to do that, they need to have well-managed habitat and, you know, Obviously, they identified nature reserves, which there's plenty of. Um, but additionally, special protection of areas uh, where they are known to display and expected to breed. And mm-hmm. continuous, unfragmented landscapes, which doesn't surprise anybody who studies grassland ecology, because that's usually the case for these grassland-dependent animals, especially the larger ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And what's really cool is that they identify a lot of uh, things that humans can do to both keep land in production and also lessen the impacts. Like, you know, they're saying you can plant crops favored by these species that will benefit the species. Um, You can keep landscapes uh, unfragmented by subsidizing them for low impact farming and reduced grazing pressure and stuff like that. You can institute strict and strong control of hunting and poaching and dog predation, because in some areas, dog predation is an issue. It's a giant turkey thing. Uh, Uncontrolled dogs that just roam the landscape are kind of the equivalent of house cats in America in terms of bird impacts. Uh, Mm. So that's a huge thing. And also inappropriate grass fires. So um, basically anything that creates a landscape that's very similar across the board is a detriment to these species. Sure, sure, yeah. Makes sense. And of course they say, you know, public awareness campaigns and that kind of stuff too. And what's really cool is that this, I think, paper came out in 2017 about the bustards specifically. And uh, at this point in time, they already had a model that they recommended using from Castro Verde Special Protection Area in Portugal, where they have great and little bustards. And... They actually supported the livelihoods of the communities that live there, the the human communities, through subsidies and other programs that provide, uh, you know, economic stability to the people in that region, in that area living with the bustards. And through implementing that and good habitat management practices, they were able to sustain and increase the little and great bustard numbers and provide a livelihood for the people in that area so they didn't have to keep, you know, encroaching onto the bird's habitat, but could instead do sustainable farming and have uh, economic security. So it's like, Mm. wow, it's possible to provide practical solutions that support everybody. It's just that you have to prioritize both the human issues and the ecological issues at the same time, which is... Well, like one of the primary things you learn in wildlife management is that it's so much less trying to make pristine wildlife habitat and so much more figuring out how to strike a balance between the humans 
and the animals that are both using the landscape in tandem. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be more successful if you can make the people that are already there happy and, you know, empower them to help out. Yeah, exactly. And and this is even more important in the Charchapuri areas because of those, you know, massive numbers of people that live on Charchapuri, 80% of them live below poverty. And a lot of them are immigrants and minorities or marginalized groups in that area, like mm-hmm. Muslim immigrants, um, which is how they're kind of labeled in that area, even though a lot of these are like, you know, fifth generation immigrants uh, in yeah. the area. But what's really great about all of the efforts going on right now in Assam is that there are really strong non-governmental organizations and very strong governmental organizations that exist purely to work in the human interests of Charchapuri specifically and to work on this conservation work as well. So so that is a priority, helping the, the human population, trying not to see the entire island of 150,000 people get washed away in 15 to 20 years. Yeah, there's an entire government organization dedicated to trying yeah. to make that happen. So that's the good news. And there's some other really good stuff that's been happening recently, too, which just makes me absolutely giddy with happiness. Okay, so listen to this, Nicole. Yes. February 20th, 2020. So, like, just over a year ago. What is it called? I didn't write down the name of the the group. It was it was a uh, convention that had representatives from multiple countries in a certain area from that region around Assam. Um, they met and had a convention for migratory species. Mm-hmm. And based on the new data we had on the Bengal florican as the flagship species for the biodiversity of this region. Oh, my heater just turned on. God damn it. Wow. <laughs> my bad. Let me hang out here for a second and let it stop. <laughs> I'm Googling Cory Buster, taking the chance. Um, they're so dumb. <laughs> they are really dumb. <laughs> But yeah, one thing I was going to mention was, like, I, I didn't even realize, and this doesn't have to be in the podcast, it's just idle chit-chat, but, <laughs> um, like, the Cory Bustard and the Great Bustard um, that live in the steppe, they don't really have, at least I don't think they do, those flight displays. Most of their oh. displays are on the ground. They do a lot of stomping and dancing, a lot like prairie chickens. Mm. Um, and they have, I, I believe they also will boom. And, like, let me show you these pictures. Like, look at this guy's tail. He's so ridiculous. So oh. they do a lot of really dramatic feather, like, craziness. Um, Man, I forgot how much one. I love Cory Bustards. They're so good. I, I, um, bless. This picture's too big. Let me, I can just copy the image address instead. <laughs> um, they're idiots. Um. But, like, I don't think they do the big flight displays. I think it's mostly just, like, ground stuff. So that's really interesting that these two species that you're talking about in India do a lot of flight displays. Yeah. And you know what? Um, this is probably something I should say when... Oh, it's fine. You know what? We're going to get background noise. It's fine. So the Bengal florican also does a strutting walking display. Okay. Which is interesting. But they also will display in shorter grass areas... Whereas florikins at large 
overall prefer tall grass areas. Okay, so it kind of makes sense that, you know, they live in slightly different habitats, so they're going to have slightly different, you know, mating displays, kind of like the quarry bustard and great bustard um, that lives in more short grass uh, ecosystems have more strutting displays versus flying displays. Yeah. So super cool. And size matters too. You know, like the lesser florican, which I think is the one that usually shows up in documentaries with that really big, like straight vertical hop out of the grasses. Yeah. It's a smaller bustard and it lives in very tall grass. Yeah. (laughs) It'd be exhausting to just jump like, 10 feet in the air when you're one of the bigger bustards. <laughs> hey, no, oh yeah, I was gonna say, not for a bird. They have jumping legs, but you're right. If it was a bigger bustard, it would be more yes. exhausting. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, since the, the Bengal florican, uh, it kind of goes in between, that also makes it like, you know, a, a great flagship because it kind of spans the range of grassland types in terms of its habitat needs that mm. everybody else requires. So okay. what a perfect perfect flagship bird it likes to strut on small grass and it likes to hide in tall grass (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome oh i love it i've never really looked into cory bustards all that much but now i'm kind of in love with bustards as a group oh uh bengal florkins are my favorite bird of the week definitely gonna tweet about them um (laughs) but yeah uh oh shoot what was i just gonna say what were you saying before we stopped Oh, the Convention for Migratory Species. Yeah, okay, so so here's what's so cool. Because we, we got the data, and I don't even think I did a good job of describing what the data showed. Like, I did mention that they were showing up in areas that they hadn't been observed before, but it also brought to our awareness that these guys, even though they are short-distance migrators, they are migratory birds, which really wasn't known before. So these Bengal florikins are crossing... Uh, national borders often in their migrations not all the time but often they do and so with this new distribution data the bengal florican was brought up at this convention for migratory species last year and there was a unanimous vote to accept the proposal to include this bird in like the highest priority appendix of this Convention for Migratory Species, which is an international agreement across the bird's range now for its protection, to prioritize its protection. Okay. Because of all the things we've talked about. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. So so basically what this means for this bird is that there's an international agreement. Now, I I would think of it as, you know, maybe a, a Himalayan sort of region uh, version of a Migratory Bird Treaty Act that we have in uh, the Americas to protect birds migrating from Canada to Mexico, you know? Um, So so basically, there's now a multi-country agreement to prioritize the preservation of the species, to to really work on and provide the government funding and resources necessary from a government level to – really work on these habitats and finding solutions like the ones that have been referenced already that are practical for the people and the animals. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing because even back in 2017, when they were talking about averting the extinction of bustards in Asia generally, they were like, listen, the the problem with bustards right now that they're facing in Asia 
is that although there are plenty of non-governmental organizations working with the species, it's it's gotten to a point now where we really cannot reasonably do this without government support mm-hmm. and funding, especially. So now, as of last year, we have that for this rarest bustard. And that means that these riverine grassland ecosystems in Assam are now a government priority. And that's really, really cool. Um, the Assam government actually has an entire website dedicated to grassland ecosystems, a page on their website dedicated to them. And there's like a whole list of all the protected areas and proposed protected areas for them, which includes several chapuris that have been proposed to be legally protected and that already have protected status. Um, like, let's see, Kobo Chapuri and some Sibia River Chapuris, which have been identified as significant by renowned naturalists for decades, um, are currently listed on the Assam government website as being proposed to be, uh, what is it called? Proposed reserve forests, which is kind of like, you know, the Indian or Assam equivalent of a national forest service park okay. in the U.S. Like there are national grasslands that fall under the forest service. Yeah, yeah. It's just that people don't care about grasslands as much as they care about forests so that the government branch is named after forests. <laughs> I know. It makes me angry. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but so what I'm saying is they're they're going to be protecting or they propose to protect even these chapuris, like the river islands – that are more permanent, that provide, like, really important grassland habitat refugia, they're going to be protected, hopefully, or they've at least been proposed to be protected. So, very exciting. Hey, I love it. What? Yeah. No, I was going to say, hey, being proposed to be protected is a big step sometimes. Yeah, especially when it's, like, listed as a proposal on the government website and it's not somebody who works you know, just in the ecology side of things saying, hey, I propose we protect it. You know, like it's an official proposal. Yeah. I found a PDF that was all of the uh, <laughs> uh, people currently working on Kobo Chapori, uh, giving their little bios and stuff, talking about the work that Aww. they do currently on the Chapori as they're awaiting legal protection status. So it was like, oh, that's I love awesome. you guys. You're doing great work. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. So I I guess it's kind of um, the conclusion for this particular story, which is a really good conclusion. And I'm so pleased that we have a good conclusion, not to say that, you know, anything is concluded at all, but that, yeah. you know, it's it's such a relief to see new pushes um, by international agreements to do the work that naturalists and biologists and ecologists have been saying is needed and that is taking into account the human dimension that is so critical for these regions as well. Like um, I mentioned how there's a an agency in Assam that's dedicated to the Charchapuri mm-hmm. and, and they primarily work with the human dimension. But uh, gosh, in, in the article about protecting Charchapuri uh, that Mangabe India did, they were interviewing the director of the agency. And he was like, yeah, until now, we, we've we never really worked on any of the ecological stuff. Um, but now that's a, a, 
a little bit of what we're doing. And, you know, that's not, again, taking away at all from the human dimension of the work, but it's just kind of cool to see, I guess, collaborative approaches like this or approaches that are becoming so collaborative um, that are that are following the professional calls of people who work in human rights and in ecology. Like it's, oh, I know why it's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we don't need to talk about that. Um, yeah, I don't know. When, when we're kind of struggling in our own country to give natural landscapes the full protection they need, especially ones that aren't already protected, but even the ones that already have protected status, you know, it's mm-hmm. so, gosh, it's it's just so exciting to me to encounter in my research all of these problems and to be like, wow, this looks pretty bleak. And then to realize that the officials who have the power to enact changes and to provide mm-hmm. the funding for those changes that are necessary, see this stuff and they're like, oh yeah, this is a problem. Let's address it. <laughs> like, yeah. Ah, what a what a great place to end. So, I guess in conclusion, I am really upset <laughs> that all zoos talk about is tigers <laughs> and not all of these really interesting and dynamic grassland landscapes that include That's these, totally valid. <laughs> like super cool like shifting changing river islands that are you know, hundreds of square miles in some cases that have pristine grassland ecosystems that, like, tigers and bustards hang out on. Like, why Uh do we just talk about, like, ooh, tigers have retractable claws. Like, tell me about how cool (laughs) these floodplains are and how different all of these animals are that utilize the grasslands. And I don't know, like, there's so much going on here that I, maybe I'm the only one that finds it interesting. I just shook my microphone. I'm very sorry. Because I realize there's so much going on in these ecosystems, and we've only started researching this stuff like three years ago. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's interesting, but we did start a whole podcast about grasslands, so we're not the most unbiased people to ask. <laughs> I guess. But but we started a whole podcast about grasslands because we love grasslands so much, and we didn't know... All of this stuff about the grasslands where tigers live. Yeah. A shame. Truly a shame. Well, thank you, Rachel. That was fantastic. I love it. And thank you, everyone, for listening to The Best Biome. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and consider leaving us a review on Podchaser Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Give us a follow on the social media, send us some fan mail, um, all that good stuff. And we'll catch you guys next week with some more grassland facts. Gross. And probably some opinions, too. A lot of opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shoot. Oh, oh, I have something. Oh, okay. Okay, one, one last thing. Um... You know how sometimes there's, like, one weird random human thing that threatens birds? Like, oh, uh, sage grouse. Yeah, like cats for some species. Or sage grouse (laughs) keep hitting barbed wire fences. Um, For bustards, it's power lines? (laughs) Oh, no. Bustards in some areas. Not not the Bengal florican. But some bustards have, like, a pretty extreme negative impact because they just keep hitting power lines.
which I find fascinating. <laughs> also, apparently giraffes in Kenya have that problem. I saw oh, a news report a couple months ago about that. So yeah, um, giraffes get uh, clotheslined by power lines, and so do bustards. Lord. It's basically the same. <laughs> Poor things. Yeah. Okay, that's all.